Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Soccer Metrics Podcast for the 21st of February, 2014. So, yes, we are now in double digits. Soccer Metrics Podcast is an information interview series with linked figures from the soccer analytics world with occasional forays into the broader world of football business and sports analytics. I'd like to tell you about a new way to access this and other podcast episodes. It's a service called Stitcher, an award-winning free app that lets you listen to this show and over 20,000 other shows in the areas of news, entertainment, and sports. The great thing about Stitcher is that you can listen to it anywhere, from your laptop, your tablet, your mobile phone, even your car. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at stitcher.com or the appropriate app stores for your phone. For this episode, I'm talking to one of the presenters from the OptiPro Analytics Forum that was held in London in early February. Oliver Page is a sports trader with experience at a number of firms in the UK and interest in applying academic research and mathematical concepts to sports statistics and betting. Oliver, thanks for joining me. Hi, Howard. Thank you for having me. So, Oliver, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so my background, or very originally, was in accountancy, actually, um, when I was first out of university. Um, but then I managed to get a job for a, a, a startup proprietary trading betting company. Um, so that's actually being the gambler, placing bets and rating sports teams and setting odds for football matches. Um, after that, I moved to the other side of the fence, so to speak, working for an actual online sports book for a number of years. Um, so the company that takes the bets off the clients. Um, I've recently left there. Um, since then, I've been doing some just trading for myself, but also some writing, blogging, and then um, such things as the Opta presentation whilst looking for my next role. I was reading some background material on you, and I noticed you saying that you didn't study much mathematics and statistics in university. What did you study, and how do you acquire math and stats knowledge? Um, my degree was business studies and European studies, which is... So there's some history, economics, politics, and obviously there's some math content to the business and accounting. But um, now most of my statistics knowledge since then has been kind of on the job, self-taught. Um, so Excel modeling mainly, um, analyzing statistical trends and using them to build ratings and models. Um, since my most recent, I've been learning the programming language R to try and step my knowledge up a level. So that's what I used for the Opta presentation, actually. So hopefully I'm going down those lines now to a higher level. Your paper stood out to me because of its unique title, which prevented me from making any prejudgments about your project. So in that <laughs> regard, it was quite clever. Could you talk to the listeners about the title, its meaning, and why you use it to describe your work. Okay. Um, for the, anyone that doesn't, the title of the paper was If You Don't Buy a Ticket, Can You Still Win the Raffle? Um, I hadn't, I'm not sure if that 
translates to the American audience. This footballs are sorry, soccer is a it's what there's a lot of cliches and kind of uh, phrases that become common usage. One of them is if you don't buy a ticket you can't win the raffle. There's obviously lots of other ones. That, um Yeah. I think yeah. what we would use here is if you don't shoot you can't score. Yeah, kind of uh you've got to take some risks, haven't you? You've got to that kind of encouraging players to take risks and take a chance. Yeah, take a chance with a long shot, basically, was the focus of my fame. I just wanted to test that. Basically, is it true? Is it, is it a, a valuable strategy kind of thing? Um, so by valuable strategy, do you mean the strategy of either having a pop from long distance or trying to work a shot in as close as possible to the goal? Yeah, basically. Um, I'm sure where there's a lot of goals models being developed at the moment, kind of expected goals is quite a buzzword at the moment. So particularly looking at the location shots were taken from, but also whether they were with the head or with the foot, what type of pass, open play, set play. So there's lots of different criteria of shots being evaluated. Um, Right. Yeah, I, I think I described your presentation as a taxonomy of shots in the Premier League, but it seems to be a little bit more than that. How do you describe it? Um, well, the, the existing models that are out there that I've described, so looking at thousands of shots, looking at um, the ones from certain locations, so over time, what is their chance of resulting in a goal? Um, I think the headline stat of mine was a shot from outside the box results in a goal 3.5% of the time. Um, but what I wanted to look at really was what happens this other, if, a, if it's only a goal 3.5%, what happens the other 96.5% of the time? Basically, just looking at whether it's a goal or not a goal seems to be a bit simplistic. So I kind of wanted to look at what are the other possible outcomes and compare inside the box versus outside. Is is it really a clear-cut decision, which is the best choice? So tell us more about the shot model, and why was it so important to account for events that occurred before and after the shot? Um, well, yeah, I wanted to link events into kind of event chains so we could see how they're related to each other, how one thing leads to another, or what results from the different types of shot. Um, so, for example, a shot could result in a goal, but it could also be you could win a corner, you could win a rebound, you could retain possession in another way, or there's also lots of downsides. You could you think, um, just trying to look at some of my numbers here, 60% of the time you just give possession back to the opposition. So what's the cost of that, kind of? These are what I was trying to put a value on each of these different outcomes. So what were your expectations going to the analysis? Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think I did have some preconceptions. Kind of a lot of the the models that are out there and discussions people are having on Twitter is there's a definite theme of, oh, why is he shooting from long range? He's just giving the ball back, conceding possession. Um, there's a few players. I can name or often getting criticised at the moment for shooting too long. So I think I was definitely expecting quite 
possibly just a clear cut uh, don't shoot from long range kind of conclusion but uh, as you know there's a bit there's a bit more to it than that in terms of what I did find out right um were there any model res results that surprised you um well there was kind of three stages I did I put to build in my research so I put the events together um, so the first stage is just the pure what happened next for a shot either inside or outside um, so that's the so, so outside the box I've got three and a half percent of a goal eleven percent of the time you win a corner um, for the rebound, rebound attempts are very interesting so outside you get a rebound attempt four percent of the time. Inside, you're more likely to get a rebound, and they're very valuable. They're converted at like twenty-eight percent of the time. So, I don't think I knew that before I did this. Um, but the second stage was really. I kind of thought I wasn't really looking at the right, the right thing. Really, if that makes sense, it's not a straight decision whether you shoot from inside or outside the box a lot of the time. There's plenty of teams, I'm sure coaches would say, yeah, we'd love to create all our chances from inside the box, but maybe my players aren't good enough or the opposition's too strong. I sometimes have to shoot from outside. So we're kind of measuring the wrong thing. So I try to measure what's the decision the player is making at that time. The decision is actually whether to shoot from long range or whether to try to create a better chance. So I wanted to also maybe try and evaluate that decision. Yeah, I think what I found interesting looking at your um, looking at your results was that corners in your model are very low percentage events, and that seemed to be exactly what Chris Anderson, David Sally, were demonstrating the numbers yeah, game. Yeah. Do um, you find it interesting as well? Yeah. Um, so. All shots inside or outside seem to result in a corner approximately 11% of the time. But the actual value of a corner is pretty low. I think I've got, yeah, just over 4,000 corners, but only 137 resulted in the goal directly. So it's that one in like 3% of corners result in the goal. So, yeah, I think it's consistent with what Chris Anderson found. Yeah, so maybe not as valuable as common knowledge would suggest. And, and why is that? Is that because we think of those corners that result in, in goals, those events stick in our mind more than the hundreds of other corner kick events that result in nothing? Yeah, I think quite possibly. Yeah, the, the ball goes out for a corner and the crowd cheer, I think, in the... Oh, there's a goal coming up, but it doesn't actually happen very often at all. Right. Um, what, what I also found interesting is that a long-range shot that ends in a goal kick is even more costly. You know, it's, as, it's almost as if a long-range shot is a wasted effort, except for very, very few players um, who are the players who we the, the players who we would expect. You know, your uh, Luis Suarez... Um, um, Gareth Bale, for example. Yeah, I th yeah so I had the yes, yeah, so the overall rate three point five percent of long shots resulting in goals, but 
there's, yeah, there's a wide variety of those rates across the different players and the different teams. There's definitely, um, yeah, you can pick out the players that. So maybe one question was: Should different players be given different introductions? Like, should some players be banned from shooting from long range? Was one of the uh, motivations for the study. Right, because it seems to me that a long range shot that is that results in a loss of possession is just a wasted effort. Yeah, loss of I had to try and put an actual value on the cost of losing possession, which is quite you could probably do a whole study on that on its own, but um no, I did have an attempt to quantify the cost of losing possession. Um I mean football's obviously a lot more fluid than a sport like basketball but I tried to quantify how many actual possessions a team has per game and put a goals value to each of those attacking possessions. So how do you go about doing that? Um, so I collated all the, so I called them on-ball actions, that's basically passes and shots. Right. So each team per game was having just show 500 total actions per game. Um, and then split those by location of where they were on the pitch. So there's 130 in the attacking third of the pitch. And and because they were connected together, we could look at um, chain length. So a string of five passes and a shot would be a chain of six. Um, or, but the average The average length per chain is actually only just over two, which I think that was one of the things that maybe surprised me as well, actually. Um, I don't find that too surprising, because I think um, if you I think if yeah. you look at the average possession of a football match, the average, um, the average length of a chain, the way you describe it, is probably about three or four touches mm -hmm. or passes. There's yeah, there's certainly lots of chains that are just one, aren't there? I suppose yeah, right. there's definitely a lot more. Uh, I think yeah, the more you think about what that's actually telling you, it makes more sense as a first. When I first saw it, I had to double check and think, is that right? Yeah, so, um, so with the average chain length, we could then look at um, rough, an approximate number for how many attacking possessions a team has per game. Uh, I came to 63 on average. And if, just crudely, if the average team scores 1.4 goals per game, each possession is therefore worth 0.022 of a goal. Right. So that that's um, but, that's almost on par with taking with a long range shot, but that's an isolated event compared to the multiple attacking possessions that a team might have. Um, but you know, it, it's I think it confirms a lot of things that we. In a sense, we already know in football that you don't get too—you really don't get too many chances to score goals. Yeah, um, exactly. yeah. But also, just the value of certain—you know—there are some plays that, of course, are a lot more valuable than others. Um, so I guess could you talk about the? I guess moving on from that, could you talk about the impact of working in possession from outside the penalty box? into uh, into the area yeah so what i wanted to say was at the point basically i wanted to analyze the decision the player makes so i think i mentioned in my person that kind of 
inspired a bit by the NFL fourth down bot kind of analyzing the decision the player was making at that point in time. Should I take this shot on or should I try and work a better opportunity for a teammate? Um, so to try and that's try and put a, a value on what's the likely success rate. If I don't shoot and try and create a better chance, how likely am I to succeed? Um, so obviously, again, it's not a perfect method, perhaps, but um, I took all the attempts from inside the box. So there were 4,200 attempts from inside the box. Not every shot inside the box has a direct pass from the teammate. So, but I think you can roughly use, I use the total number of passes that were attempted into the box against the total attempts inside as a ratio, rather than if, even if some aren't directly linked, I think as a ratio, which is, the ratio is about 30%. I think that can be a useful proxy, basically, for a team's attacking creativity. So, so on average, an attempted pass into the box relates to an attempted shot from inside at 30%. And therefore, so there's a 70% chance you don't create a chance at all, if that makes sense. <laughs> I hope I've explained that correctly. Um, okay. I, I, know it's a, I know it's challenging to express numbers numbers on audio podcast. You should say, but... my presentation, I believe, is due on the Opta website yeah. shortly if anyone wants to read the, the okay. paper. In the... We'll, pro we'll provide a link to that in the show notes, but I think what I found interesting about your analysis is that um, it seems that the, imp the expectation of scoring a goal when working a ball from outside the penalty area to inside increases by about 25 percent um so i i thought that was very interesting just you know showing that there is that there is a benefit to at least trying to work the ball um inside from you know from outside the penalty area yes the, the so the final values were taken all of the previous what we spoke about into consideration was the expected value of shooting from outside was 0.036 of a goal versus 0.045 for attempting to work the ball into a better opportunity, which, yeah, it sounds perhaps like a small difference, but, I mean, over, that's just per attempt, so over a whole game, a whole season, it's significant, I think, over a, a large enough sample. Right, that could be... You know, at least ten, you know, five or ten goal difference. Is that correct? Over, yeah, over. Over a season, I guess. Over a season, yeah. Now, I guess one caveat is that this was a study done over one season um, in in the Premier League. So, would you expect to see differences between domestic leagues, or would you might see something similar to what Chris Anderson and David Sally observed that? across the big five leagues, there really isn't that much of a difference in terms um, of output. Yeah, I haven't looked at measuring the same things for different leagues, but um, I'd be surprised if there are any large 
discrepancies over certainly over a large enough sample. Um, I don't think there, there's no obvious reasons I can think of why it would be, say, hugely different. But um, no, I mean it's certainly something that could be looked at. We've talked a lot about shots from the offensive perspective, but you stated very correctly that one has to account for the influence of the opposing team. You started going in the direction of game theory. Could you talk a little bit about that work? Um, yeah, certainly. So this is kind of inspired by, again, some of the NFL work that's been done, um, in particular Brian Burke, Advanced NFL, um, looked at game theory in relation to whether teams decide to pass or run on attacking plays. Um, I think a similar kind of situation where one option is widely known to be more valuable than the other, so to pass consistently more productive than to run. So maybe some people might ask, why why do we bother to run the ball at all? But um, obviously, as he pointed out, that even if one option is the best, you can't just do that option over and over again. So it might be best to always create shots from inside the box, but if the defence knows that's what you're going to do, they can make adjustments to counter. Um, it's obviously a bit in the kind of news at the moment with recent Manchester United matches, um, particularly the Fulham game. They broke the record for the number of crosses just having a single attacking strategy becomes predictable and defence can respond accordingly. Right. So what type of um, um, what type of game did you did you model at least? What was it as far as the game through approach? Was it a two player game? Was it a competing game, adversarial game? What um, was it? I just I took uh, Brian Burke's method of the just purely looking at the like a zero sum. So what's the payoff to the attacking team from their strategy versus the what if the def how the defence responds trying to put expected values on those so like in a matrix and then in a graph form. Um, it's obviously easier said than done. It's quite difficult to put actual values on these things, but um, that's maybe something else that would be more... I didn't, couldn't really settle on a satisfactory way to actually estimate... I mean, sorry, I ended up estimating, sorry, rather than actually putting a value on them, but well, I think it's quite a valuable exercise to do, I mean. Well, well, it's a start, and it seems that, from your analysis, that... Um, and and here it, it really is worth it to uh, to view the presentation. It seemed that it was optimal to have six players inside the box. And if you wanted to, if I guess the optimum or equilibrium strategy was for the offensive team to have six players in the box, ostensibly to collect rebounding opportunities or receive balls from um, from outside. Is that was that right? Um, that, that was I reading that. No, that's that's not quite correct. Sorry. Um, okay. I was looking at the basically proportion of shots. So whether a team shoots takes all their shots from inside, hundred percent inside versus hundred percent outside, rather than 
where the players are. Um, so uh, they basically looked at the two extremes and tried to graph the two extremes. So if a team took 100% of their shots inside and the defense was set up to defend 100% inside, what would the value be? And then for all the four different points on that graph, my equilibrium was um, where the team takes 60% of their shots from inside the box and 40% from outside. Oh, okay. So that's more, it's more about position of taking shots than placement of yeah, players. Yeah, which, sorry. Um, which makes a lot more sense because you know, we don't have, we don't have player location data. No, I, I, data. I'd love to be able to do that. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, these, the values, I should say, the values in my, to get to that equilibrium were estimates. I mean, I haven't settled on a satisfactory way to, to say this is definitive, I mean, it's very difficult to to predict what the defence would do and to put a value on it. But I think it's certainly, to my mind, it sounds, certainly sounds reasonable. Hopefully it does to yours as well. Okay. I guess the... What, um, sorry, I've got the... What I didn't mention was the actual, the actual splits, like what our teams actually... What is their actual split between shooting from inside and outside? I think from top to bottom, the percentage of shots that were long range is between 47 and 59% at present, what it was for last season. So I think Stoke took the highest percent from outside, 59, and Manchester United the lowest at 47. So I think we're in that kind of range in terms of what is actually happening on the field as well, which is interesting. Um was there was there any correlation between that ratio and finishing position? It seemed that there's not. I mean, obviously Manchester United won the league last year, but um, was yeah, there much of a correlation? Not. I mean, yes, at the, at the extremes, you know, like you say, Manchester United. I think Arsenal were high, were up there with Manchester United. Sorry, in terms of more attempts from inside. Uh, you find my because it seems to be it also seems to be correlated with possession uh, with possession tempo or even number of possessions um yeah i mean there's certainly i don't know if it's let's say um correlation and causation i don't know if a team is taking more shots from outside just as a result of not being as skillful at creating opportunities inside, or if, or if the relationships work in the other way around, if they're right, if they're lower down. They're, they're certainly just looking at the list now: Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Fulham, Man City, Chelsea would be the, in inverted commas, best at shooting from inside. But uh, that's just the ratio between inside and outside. So yeah, and. Yeah, I have older data, but I, as far as analysis of possession is concerned, but but with the exception of Chelsea, all of those teams that you mentioned were teams that had um, that had very very deliberate styles of play. Mm. Yeah, I think styles of play is uh, definitely another layer. I mean, we've talked about some ratios of creating chances or 
converting chances with such variations a decent enough variation across the different teams to uh, maybe look at different strategies for different teams. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, um, I liked what you said at the beginning of your talk, um, where at least one of the opening slides you had a statement, um, not all shots are created equal. And I think if you placed that statement in front of someone at a football club, they would agree with you. So why do we continue persisting in talking about shots or passes and aggregate? Uh, well, I mean, hopefully, I think one of the things that came out of the whole forum which is that hopefully we are adding the context. The context is the, I think it was Rob Carroll, um, you know, website, the video analyst, has done a good article emphasizing context to these statistics so um, hopefully that's one thing I did I know some of the other presentations definitely did adding context to these statistics and not just how many shots result in the goal yeah what was the situation that created it or and making meaningful comparisons between them um, I don't see your uh, I noticed one post that you had written on uh, changes to the sports training industry uh, in Europe, particularly the movement to professional uh, syndicates. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and also the, influ the influence, if any, uh, from the financial sector in the sports training industry? Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, my background in sports betting... I don't think it's much of a factor in the US market at all. Um, yeah, so it's certainly from the main bookmakers or sports books, there's a trend, kind of a split towards more popularizing betting, maybe more volume going for smaller kind of clients. Um, but just, it's very it's, it's bookmaking and soccer in this country go hand in hand you watch a live broadcast of a match all the adverts are for bookmakers and betting and and what happens it's obviously not something that you'll get in the states but um yeah there's certainly a trend towards that but at the same time i mean hopefully put myself in this group the more sophisticated trading kind of setting the odds techniques of maybe going out of the industry a little bit in terms of going more to working for, yes, syndicates and bet, actual companies betting rather than taking the bets off clients. So, um, so has it become more quantitative? Like is it, does it run parallel to the growth of quantitative trading in the financial sector? There's definitely, yeah, there's huge um, overlap in terms of, yeah, techniques and, syndicate style kind of proprietary trading kind of houses is very similar to techniques used for trading on the stock market but um none of it in the public domain i would say in terms of right quite, yeah like, that's... I, I would say i met a lot of interesting people last week at the forum and all from different backgrounds and you don't really get many uh people from betting backgrounds wanting to talk about what they do that's kind of something that 
unfortunately is the case in this country that I don't think is in America. Not the same. There's not the same situation. I, I, I think there's I think there's a similar parallel in the financial industry because the hedge funds have some very sophisticated um, quantitative analysis and quantitative training algorithms, and you know they keep those proprietary. And I, I'm sure they talk about they talk amongst themselves about certain things, but they probably know some things that the rest of the financial sector isn't privy to because. Mm. They're not. Their culture is not about sharing uh, what they have. Yeah, I mean, I, I said some of the cleverest people I know work in uh, sports betting, but um, yeah, a lot of the work doesn't make its way into. The incentives are obviously financial and for keeping work proprietary. Um. That goes into my next question. Uh, it seems that one difference between U.S. and Europe is that the analytics and the influence in analytics started in either fantasy or betting. Betting if you're in Europe, fantasy if you're here in the U.S. And that, then that knowledge flowed to the clubs as far as observations being observed, people taking interest on the club side. Are there observations about the game from the betting or trading side that transfer well to the playing side, or is it? Are we talking about a completely different, different um, game? I guess, so to speak. Um, in a, well, in a general sense, I think my background is looking at looking at everything from a probabilistic kind of point of view. What's the chance of this and that, and that kind of perspective I think I'm not sure if that's always appreciated outside of betting like putting an actual probability percentage on everything that happens I think in the general sense specifically things that could transfer over there's certainly ratings of teams ratings of players um, the impact of certain external factors on performance um, so scheduling, weather, referees, I'm not sure how much this is studied outside of the betting industry at a more specific level. But just, I think, to me, it's the general probabilistic perspective, kind of. Okay. Um, I want to get back to that, but I want to... Uh, talk about an article that you had written on the, the Scottish game. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, what you wrote there and what um, what the main what the main themes were? Okay. Um, yeah. So after the opt presentation, I did an article for the Statsbomb website, um, which is about. I think at the moment, there's in the UK, there's a definite as we get more statistical analysis making its way slowly into the media there's a bit of a backlash there's certainly some plenty of articles or comments appearing why we all these stats are rubbish they take no account of context and um yeah what why are we why what are they what can they tell us kind of thing and my article was kind of saying that a lot of the people that were at the forum and 
a lot of people in this industry find it difficult to defend or kind of part of the job is to defend what we're doing at the same time as doing it really and kind of against this backlash with the background of um, what happened to Lip when John Henry first took over at Liverpool being at the same time as the movie of Moneyball was being released so there's certainly a time when you couldn't talk about sports analytics without mentioning the word or the book or the film Moneyball and kind of I just find it interesting that nobody actually spoke about that at all that day. Yeah, I was rather quite relieved about that. <laughs> it's become a bit of a cliche, hasn't it? Kind of, oh, so what do you do for a living? Or you, what do you do for this? Or are you like, are you like Moneyball, are you? Kind of thing. And yeah, the only, it, Particularly in this country, that word, I'd say, has a lot of negative connotations. Um, I say particularly in terms of what happened at Liverpool when John Henry first took over and the whole analytic kind of perspective they took and the signings they made allegedly on the back of this analysis didn't really work. Yeah, I have some... You know, I have some perspectives on that. You know, we've we've interviewed Damien Camoli for a previous for a previous podcast, and we've interviewed some other people um, who were involved in in scouting. So, you know, he has obviously he has his own opinion on what went on there. You know, people from the outside have their own opinion. Um, what what I find interesting about Moneyball is that it is it's a tactic. It's one of many tactics that people can do within, within sports analytics. Um, but it's not sports analytics by itself. Um, it's easy to, it's a catch all phrase. That's easy yeah. to describe. Um, yeah, I've, I found it very easy to tell people to tell people what I do by saying, yeah, what I do is my ball for soccer. Yeah, but deep down inside, I die a little bit whenever I say <laughs> that because I I really I really dislike that term because it it implies it implies a different mode of thinking that I think analytics is more than that. You know, it's more than just finding that one that one golden statistic that will unlock all knowledge about the game. Yeah, I which agree, I don't think yeah. exists anyway. No. That's um, yeah, the kind of the Hollywood dream scenario. I don't think anyone that uh, certainly anyone that was there on Thursday, last Thursday, sorry, um, would believe that there's this one, yeah, one golden ticket that we can find to uh, solve everything. Right, and, and I, I do think that you know, in some areas, um, you know, in I'm not pointing an accusatory finger at anyone. I could easily point at myself. I think there is a little bit of humility that's that's lacking. And I think this it's not just true in soccer analytics. I think it's true in any any computational or analytical field where people put a lot of faith in the models that they use and don't temper that you know, temper those observations against what's going on in reality. Yeah, I would agree. Um, hopefully it was something I tried to 
agree into my presentation a little bit as well in terms of all the numbers we talk about conversion rates or the chance of this happening they're yeah. estimates aren't they they're point estimates they're yeah I, and I think you sample. and I think you attempted to address that through through inclusion of confidence intervals yep I'll th not perfect but I think that's a start to gain people to realize this is not a point estimate or this is not a fixed it's not a fixed expectation of what will happen because those evolve over time and circumstance but this is an observation of what we expect things will happen now things are right now and here's how that expectation can vary absolutely and in terms of feedback into my so it's my coming from a probability background kind of i mean for betting background odds bet background you can't win every bet you have you can't always be right but over the long term if you're better than the market over the long term the probability's on your side and you'll win out so kind of that's always in my mind but i'm not sure how much that often translates in terms of when talking about these statistics yeah you, you know it's interesting because um another an, another endeavor that i'm really interested in is weather forecasting and okay. i know a number of meteorologists and like broadcast professional and so forth and one thing that they communicate one thing they tell me is that it's very difficult to communicate to the public probabilistic yeah um events like communicating there's a 40 percent chance of of rain or in this part of the country there is a 20 percent chance of severe weather including tornadoes which in the weather community is a really big deal like 20 20 yeah. is huge but to the general public 20 percent means well there's eight percent chance it may not happen yeah. um so how in, in sports analytics i think one really great Another really great um, sentence you posted in your presentation was that sports analytics risks becoming deterministic or being uh, shoehorned into coming up with deterministic um, uh, deterministic uh, findings or, or results. Yet it is so difficult to communicate in probabilistic terms to the general public. How do we how do we start on the road of of achieving that of communicating these probabilistic events in a way that the that the football community can understand and appreciate yeah i think it's interesting in terms of it's actually maybe both sides kind of coming at it from the sometimes maybe as presenting statistics we're almost scared to say scared to present maybe confidence intervals or talk about well it's somewhere between these because but because we're not sure kind of we don't want to come across as being unsure but then certainly a lot of the criticism of statistics at the moment is is exactly the opposite saying there's no context where's the context or 
you haven't considered this and that. So I think maybe both sides of the argument almost want want the the uncertainty. They want it to be measured. They want it to be presented. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I think Aston Villa's shooting range is between 3 and 9% in the long run. I don't think that's the worst thing to say. I think maybe people want context. I don't think we should be afraid of saying that we're not sure about this kind of. Okay. Um, We're almost at the end of our time together. So where can people follow you online? Uh, Yeah, so I'm a bit of a nomad on the internet at the moment. So I've done some writing for a couple of sites. So that would be StatsBomb. There's a site called Sports Trading Network and the Inside FPL fantasy website. Um, My Twitter handle is shrew123, if people wish to follow me on there. Okay. Um, We'll put all those links up in the show show notes, and I'll be coming up uh, a few hours after after this. Um, Well, uh, that's going to do it for our time here. My guest for this episode of the Soccermetrics Podcast has been Oliver Page. Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Howard. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccermetrics Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccermetrics Podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccermetrics Podcast. The Soccermetrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at SoccerMetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at SoccerMetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.